Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio spreading good cheer this holiday season. I welcome you to a full hour of delicious conversation. This is the best of food and drink culture. I'm delivering chefs' perspectives, recipes, and culinary insights to eaters across the country every Sunday, and you can show your great taste just by tuning in. This is your destination for gastronomic inspiration, from gourmet shopping to preparation and presentation to cultivating your most delectable dishes, I am here to help you bring it all together. I hope that you'll listen in for great ideas on vegetarian and gluten-free options, cooking with kids, the latest food products and trends, and wine knowledge galore. And please know that there are no reservations needed. You can find me serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and listen to my tasty podcasts on iTunes, FeedBurner, and Blueberry listed under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. And you'll find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. Okay, for today's kickoff conversation, it's the perfect time for French onion soup, don't you think? Today's cooking lesson is all about the Bistro Classic, the most homey and delicious example of what I think is really good cooking. It only has a handful of very frugal ingredients to make up the restaurant favorite. It's onions and good stock or broth and butter, good quality butter and salt, and they mingle together and make this slow, beautiful magic that transforms the bowl into this luxurious, silky, wonderful, rich soup. And if you've eaten French onion soup in the best of French restaurants, then you'll be shocked if you haven't made it at home, how very easy it is to put together. The magic ingredient though, in a great French onion soup, in my opinion, is patience. French onion soup is probably the most dramatic example of how patience and time can transform a very humble food into a final dish. French onion soup has a lengthy cooking process. You caramelize the onions very slowly and deliberately, and then you simmer them in the broth for a really long time. And if you skimp on either of the two phases, you get something less than the soup of your dreams. By the way, you can even simmer a great French onion soup in a slow cooker or in your oven at 250 degrees for a couple few hours and you will have the most extraordinary finished product. You will be a culinary hero. Now, if you've made onion soup many a time, then please continue to listen because I have a new spin on the classic, I would call it, a twist on the traditional and a couple of tips to share with you because the lesson here is really how to caramelize. Pure and simple, brown means flavor. Caramelization is the act of breaking down the natural sugar molecules in food to create a different flavor compound. And caramelization makes everything taste better. Now, caramelization is one of the most important types of browning 
processes. It occurs during heating or roasting or grilling of specific foods that have high concentrations of carbohydrates, which are also known as sugars. But it applies to protein as well. Like when you remove the water from a sugar, you make caramel. And caramelization can start at relatively high temperatures and create a browning reaction, which is how a protein like a steak sears beautifully in a crazy hot pan. But caramelization can also work low and slow where you get this sweet, delicious, dark amber over a period of time. Now, the reaction occurs in everything from onions to roasting vegetables at high heat to a steak, as I mentioned, in a cast iron skillet. And to study the technique of caramelizing, you don't want to be afraid of high heat for the steak or the roasted vegetables. You'll get that great sear and a really nice crust and fabulous flavor. But when you're caramelizing onions for French onion dip or French onion soup, think low and slow. The onions are delicate and you want to draw the moisture out of them and slowly encourage the sugar to deepen in flavor. Trust me, the time and the energy you put into browning and caramelizing these onions is entirely worth it. Now, I love to tell this story, so forgive me if you've heard it before, but when I had the initial privilege to work with the great Emeril Lagasse, who has been a wonderful mentor to me, he uh, taught me to make gumbo and we were about to make a roux. And I remember him saying that we were going to make a two-beer roux. But I remember thinking to myself, don't say it, don't say it. But there's no beer in roux. Well, I came to realize that a two-beer roux, according to Emeril, is the amount of time it takes to drink two beers in order for the roux to get dark enough that you have the ultimate gumbo. And so I have transformed this methodology that he taught me into glass and a half of Chardonnay caramelized onions because the classic French onion soup is all about the onions and it should take you about a glass and a half of sipping and talking and stirring of Chardonnay to make the ultimate caramelized onions for the soup. Now, I like to upgrade my French onion soup. I sweat sweet Vidalias or Maui onions with really good quality European butter because European butter has a lesser water content or more butter fat. And then I love that really sweet base for the rich broth. And so that low and slow technique of caramelizing onions definitely achieves that final flavor profile. Now, speaking of the onions, you don't want to slice them too thin or too thick for French onion soup. Somewhere around like an eighth of an inch thickness is perfect. And my best recipe is based on and adapted from Julia Child's recipe from Mastering the Art of French Cooking. But I've put a twist on it and I've given you options. So posted at chefjamie.com, you will find the ultimate French onion soup recipe. You can caramelize your onions on top of the stove. I do mine with a mix of, as I mentioned, European butter and olive oil in a large saute pan, more surface area, the better. And it'll take about 30 minutes and you stir often, or you can actually caramelize onions in the oven. You'll start at a high temperature, like 425 degrees, and you'll toss the sliced onions with olive oil. You won't use butter at this point in the recipe because it will burn. And you roast the onions in the oven, stirring about every 10 minutes, and they take 30 to 40 minutes, but you will get a beautiful caramelization as well. It's 
I will say a secondary choice, in my opinion, to caramelizing on top of the stove, but it does work. And then, of course, you will take these beautiful onions and you will deglaze them with good cognac or brandy. You will add in a good, rich beef broth, bring it all to a simmer, and let it cook slowly for at least an hour or so. I say two for the ultimate flavor. And then, of course, I love a thick slice of French bread with uh, grated Gruyere cheese under the broiler as the crouton that you float on top. You will have the ultimate bowl of absolute warm your heart, feed your soul winter soup. And if your onion soup turns out as beautifully as I know it will, take a snapshot, please, and send it to me. My email address, jamie at chefjamie.com. Once again, the recipe for the ultimate French onion soup with lots of twists and turns on the traditional. I love the classic, but you know, I love to change it up. Posted at chefjamie.com. Okay. In food news this week, think of it as a Christmas present from the Food Network. Did you hear, fans of Iron Chef America? I thought you'd be delighted to know the show is coming back. Food Network announced a brand new retooling of Iron Chef America just a couple of days ago with the mad culinary genius that is Alton Brown returning as the host. The new series has a new name. It's actually called Iron Chef Gauntlet, which scares me a little bit. But you can expect some new twists on the series classic format. The original series, of course, featured Iron Chefs that were... Uh, the notable Bobby Flay and Maury Moto and Michael Simon. There is no word on who will appear as the Iron Chefs in this new season, but I think it's safe to say you will get pretty big fish from culinary waters. Iron Chef originally aired for 12 seasons and concluded in 2015. Iron Chef Gauntlet begins production early next year, and that is some food you can use, right? And do not touch your dial because we are dishing coming up next with celebrated chef Evan Mallett on the local food movement live from New Hampshire. Also, you'll learn about the newest advances in milk alternatives later this hour. So stay tuned. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with much more fabulous food right after this. Loading your plate with ideas, recipes, and tips that are easy to make and hard not to love, seasons eatings to you, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. At the renowned Black Trumpet Restaurant located in the historic seacoast city of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Chef Evan Mallet's cuisine reflects the constantly changing seasons of New England, fished, farmed, and foraged. In his first cookbook release, which, by the way, is quite a stunner, Evan takes seasonal cooking to a whole new level, and in the process, he's really redefining New England cuisine. There are more than 250 innovative recipes that are simultaneously tracing the growth and evolution of our local food movements. Black Trumpet 
urges adventurous home cooks like you and I and chefs alike to rethink local ingredients. Three-time James Beard Award nominee for Best Chef Northeast, Evan Mallet, is here to dish. And I am very honored to have you. Hi, Chef. Hi, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Yes, of course. Okay, the book itself is a beauty. It was a wonderful read, Evan, in addition to, of course, the inspiration of recipes. But I love what I most, even before I got to the recipes, the first line in the introduction where you write, and I quote, you can taste passion. It's true, right? It is so true. <laughs> so you know, true. And I think, you know, from years of staying in this business, it's indicative of the fact that, I mean, if you don't have that, then it's just a job. And frankly, the, <laughs> the downsides of being a cook or a chef uh, can easily outweigh the passion if that passion isn't strong and i find so many people in the industry burn out because they lose that fire and to me it's the fire from within that cooks the food as much as the literal fire well your passion is ignited on every page and i would love if you would give us your general thoughts on what you call the good food revolution or the movement that started as we know it uh, as farm to table well even before it had that terminology, Jamie, it was, um, there was this buzz that started around the country, um, around the word locavore. And I feel like that was really over 20 years ago, we started hearing, um, those, those murmurs of this idea of eating locally, which of course we know now, as we should have known Mm -hmm. then, um, is the natural state of things and the way the world worked for a very, very long time since we first took up agriculture. Um, so local food systems have been abandoned by uh, technology, and you can argue lots of other political components like greed and uh, convenience that have kind of dominated the landscape in the last 70 years or so. And uh, when people started talking about locavore or eating locally, it to me was a wake-up call to think more assiduously about where ingredients come from. And having been uh, a restaurant owner for half of that 20-year period, um, I've really tried to, you know, through my own growth as a, as a cook and a chef, um, implement that philosophy that the closer to the source my ingredients are, mm. the more wholesome they are, um, the more transparent they are, which is really important in today's world, too, and uh, the more nourishing. So those are all factors that I think are super important about this so-called farm-to-table movement that while it seems, uh, you know, catchy and trendy, uh, it's, it's deeper. It's much, much deeper than that. I believe that your commitment, and I, I really very much think that the food world could use uh, more passion like yours, elevates the culinary process. It is a very thoughtful approach. And I think if we all took it on a daily basis, we would slowly change our own culinary perspective and the betterment of our family and our children and those around us would continue to propel. Um, I, I really appreciate your thoughtfulness I happen to agree with you as well that stock is a chef's best friend. I got to page 13 in the book 
And I loved that you're boosting your stocks with big umami ingredients like dried corn and dried mushrooms. So can you elaborate on that for us, please? Especially at the holiday season. What a wonderful way to elevate the base of a recipe. Sure, yes. I, you know, we have a store next to Black Trumpet called Stock and Spice. And in that store, we sell a lot of those very umami ingredients that you're talking about. Anything dehydrated, um, you know, can concentrate the flavor. And when you reconstitute it in that broth or stock that you're cooking slowly, uh, it really adds this, this complexity of flavor and depth of flavor. Uh, so you mentioned, uh, you know, dried mushrooms, mushroom stems. Anytime we're, you know, working with vegetables in the restaurant, we always save all of the, the extra parts because those parts have just as much flavor while they may not translate into the same ease of uh, cooking. Drying those ingredients or preserving those ingredients is a really great way to address food waste while also stocking your, your larder with amazing umami additives to stocks throughout the year. Yeah, really smart. You know, I have a, a, a mini garden at home, um, but I find that same component of waste. And what I've started to do is I'll take the, uh, the time that didn't make it or, you know, that is aging or otherwise, and I'm putting it all in a, a zipper bag and either keeping it in the fridge or collecting things in the freezer and then when I go to make my stock, I just dump in the bag, Evan. And I will tell you, it's like, it's like a gift. Like you found the, the hidden treasure because you Absolutely. have all this new fabulous flavor. And it really is a wonderful consideration when it comes to waste that we, we need to be more mindful. Absolutely. And if you're, I, I, I trust you're better than we are at my home where we <laughs> go through that process and then fail to label the bag. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So we then have to decipher what the contents what of the bag is, are. In, right. in the restaurant, we're, you know, absolutely <laughs> meticulous about labeling everything, but it doesn't quite translate to the home front. Um, it's early winter where I live in Southern California. By the way, very different than your winter in New Hampshire. Um, that is true. Yes, but I can't wait to make your mussels steamed in porter with leeks and chorizo. Can you teach us the recipe? Oh, you know, it's super simple. And then when you start steaming those mussels in the fat that's rendered from the chorizo with the leeks or onions. If you don't have leeks, you can, you know, throw in pretty much any allium uh, family member. It just steams those muscles open and they get that light spice and that umami from the sausage. It's just so good. Mm, And then the porter, of course, is like this earthy component. It adds just a tinge of bitterness that's countered uh, by the sweetness of the muscle meat itself. And out there in the West Coast, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I, I do make a strong argument that the mussels from the Gulf of Maine are the best mussels in the world. And I know I'll be challenged by New Zealanders who have the green lip <laughs> mussels. I hope you'll come back um, in the next couple of months when you're in the depths of winter. I would love to have you. I'd like to talk more in depth about maple syrup. And I'd, like, I'd, I'd love as well to do a stock 101 conversation to roast the bones or not to roast that is the question right and I (laughs) hope that is one of the questions in my book one of the many I hope that you'll come back you're welcome anytime you have an open invitation I I would be honored thank Thank you you. I congratulate you on a, a beautiful work of art cookbook Black Trumpet not only tells the story of a great restaurant it traces the growth and the evolution of the local food movement and you have got to love a chef 
that is intellectual. Evan Mallet is dedicated to extracting flavor and combining both commonplace and unusual ingredients. There is so much to learn from this new cookbook. You'll want to read it like prose and cook from it. It's called Black Trumpet. And you can find it on Amazon, online, etc. And you can learn more about Evan's incredible talent at blacktrumpetbistro.com. Thank you for sharing your passion, Evan. A very happy holiday season. I look forward to talking with you in 2017. Happy holidays to you as well, Jamie, and to your listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, a pleasure. As the delicious conversation continues, we do have the greatest culinary thinkers on this show. You wouldn't dare touch your dial now, would you? This is your culinary playground every Sunday. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Got milk? Nope. Well, we've got almond milk and coconut milk and soy milk alternatives. But have you seen milk made from legume proteins? In the taste, nutrition, and sustainability categories, pea protein-based milk products are making their entrance into the dairy-free market. And I find it fascinating. If you haven't seen Ripple yet, it is the plant-based milk that is taking the dairy industry by storm. And you're about to learn all about it right here and right now. The milk was developed by Dr. Neil Renninger, founder of Ameris, and Adam Lowry, the founder of Method Cleaning Products. We love those. And it boasts eight times more protein than almond milk but half the sugar as dairy milk, not to mention it's also good for the environment. Adam Lowry of the two creators is here to dish, and I'm glad to have you. Hi, Adam. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yes, of course. We certainly know your success. Congratulations with Method Cleaning Everything, um, of which I am a great fan. Um, And you're making some waves with Ripple. I think it's very fascinating that milk has come so far, but I think the most important question Uh, to kick off the conversation is what constitutes milk today? Like the the definition of the word seems to have stretched. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Technically, by law, you can only call something milk if it comes out of a nipple, if it comes from a mammal, believe it or not. But there are lots now of of plant-based alternatives to milk, but by law, you you have to qualify what you call them. You can't just call them milk. Which is really interesting because they're very, very similar in terms of uh, uh, their composition in many ways. So speaking of composition, for those who are looking, let's say, to go dairy-free in the new year or looking for a new dairy substitute, tell us about Ripple, please. Because I'd like to know and understand more about yellow pea protein. Sure. I mean, the reason we created Ripple is that most people that make the choice to go dairy-free these days do it First of all, in part, not in whole, they they go partially dairy-free. And the second thing is that they're generally doing it to try to live a healthier lifestyle, not because they're dietary restricted in in some way. Uh, But when you make that switch from dairy, which is generally people recognize dairy milk is creamy and delicious and Mm. it's got lots of protein. When you make that switch to non-dairy alternatives like almond milk, you're sacrificing uh, protein and nutrition. Almond milk only has a gram of protein. Coconut milk and cashew milk have no protein at all. 
Uh, and everybody knows that those products are sort of thin and watery and chalky. They're not creamy and delicious the way that milk is. So uh, Neil and I set out to create something that actually could stand up to milk in terms of, of its nutrition and its, and its taste. I think it's fascinating. Were you the first to experiment with pea protein? Because I don't know much about it, except for I do know that unless you cook a split pea with a ham hock and some really good stock to make soup, it's not the most delicious flavor profile on its own. No, no, no. (laughs) Yellow pea protein does not taste good. Uh, No. And if you make a milk out of yellow pea protein, uh, and we've done it, it really doesn't taste good. Um, We we have a special process at Ripple where we actually make our own protein directly from peas, um, and it's a patented process that we developed, actually Neil developed. He's the smart one in the duo. I don't know and about that. And what it does is it removes all of that off color and flavor that mm-hmm. you get uh, when you get a pea protein. Um, it's actually the same reason why soy milk tastes really strong of soybeans. It actually, protein is flavorless. And so it's not the protein that gives it the flavor. It's all that other junk. And so uh, the way we make our protein, uh, we get rid of all of the impurities. So we have the really the purest uh, plant protein on earth that we then make the ripple milk out of. Hmm. I, I wonder, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, what it was that propelled you into the milk, quasi-milk cate- <laughs> category. Yeah. Are you yeah. uh, are you dairy-free lifestyle-wise? Is this a um, an eco-friendly earth commitment? What is it? Well, it's it, well, I mean, it's a little of all of those things. So Neil and I are really motivated by uh, using business to create social and environmental benefits. That's what he did, and that's what I did in, in our previous businesses. And we both were really drawn to the food space hmm. because that's where the impacts are, and yes. it's also a much more personal uh, thing, and it's also part of our culture. And so if you want to create positive change through business, what better place to do it than in the food space? And the reason we went after milk uh, was because it's one of the biggest and most everyday categories out there. And milk, a a gallon of milk takes a 1,000 gallons of water to make, and a single almond takes more than a gallon of water to make. So the the alternatives out there are not very sustainable, and the plant-based alternatives are are not very nutritious either and not delicious. So we said, hey, let's start here. We're talking about the newest advances in milk alternatives. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with Adam Lowry. We'll be right back. back and we're dishing a very happy holiday season to you chef jamie gwen in your radio so speak to the sustainability please of 
pea protein based milk? Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, first of all, peas are a legume, as you mentioned, and as a result of that, they fix their own nitrogen, so they're much better for soil health, and they grow in regions where you don't need to irrigate. So unlike almonds, which are grown in the Central Valley of California and right. require a lot of irrigation, um, it rains where peas grow. So you don't have to irrigate them. That lowers the water footprint by a lot. That also mm-hmm. lowers the carbon footprint uh, by a whole bunch because you don't have to transport water uh, in order to, to grow the peas. Um, and compared to cows, a lot of people know that cows have um, a big carbon footprint through methane emissions. So um, there's, those are the primary reasons on water and carbon why uh, a pea-based milk product is a lot more sustainable. Really fascinating to me. Uh, how does this affect the state of the dairy industry? Or, or what is the current state of the dairy industry today in your opinion, and and where is it going? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, People in the U.S. are drinking 35% less milk per capita than they did 30 years ago. Hmm. And milk is a very mom and apple pie kind of thing. And it's it's steeped in family history, right? We grew up drinking a glass of milk at dinner time. Um, And that is sort of fading, and it's getting replaced with other things right now. The dairy industry is fighting that, um, as you would expect them to. And there's more and more alternatives now coming on the market. And our philosophy is that if you're going to have an alternative to something like milk, it can't be a sacrifice. It can't be a sacrifice in taste or nutrition or mouthfeel or any of those things. Hmm. And our feeling was that in the, in the dairy alternative milk space, that they were all pretty kind of crappy products. Yeah. And, and we had a way to make one that um, was really delicious, really nutritious, could stand up to milk on all of those fronts uh, and certainly do much better than other uh, dairy alternatives. And for us, that's what it's all about. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're going to create change through food, it's got to be great food first. And I think a lot of people forget that. You certainly are, no doubt, a a forward food thinker. I commend you on your commitment to good health and our environment. I congratulate you and uh, Dr. Neal on this what is been touted as and is being talked about as a new milk revolution. And you certainly set the pace for 2017 for food trends. And I like to stay on top of news you can use on this show. So thank you for inspiring us to new ideas and to new flavors and to giving us insight into, uh, into Got Milk. All right. Well, thank you, Jamie. It was my pleasure. (laughs) I appreciate it very much. He is Adam Lowry, the founder of Method Cleaning Products, and along with Dr. Neil Renninger, the founder of Amaris, they have created Ripple. It is a pea protein-based milk product, and you will see it in this dairy-free world we live in. Uh, Certainly fascinating stuff. Ripple has launched nationally at Whole Foods and at Target stores across the country. You can learn more at ripplefoods.com. And you should stay tuned. Don't touch your dial because there's always something fabulous to learn about the wonderful wide world of food. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We'll be right back.
season's eatings to you and welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Organic living pioneer Maria Rodale is joining us today to share her food philosophy and her new cookbook entitled Scratch, Home Cooking for Everyone, Made Simple, Fun, and Totally Delicious. Maria is at the helm of Rodale Inc., a happy living company whose mission is to inspire health and healing, happiness and love in the world. She says that a good meal unites people, and I agree. I'm really glad to talk with you, Maria. Hi, and welcome. Thank you. It's so great to be here. And happy holidays to you. Same to you. Thank Thank you. you. Can you define your viewpoint on real food for us, please? Because this is a philosophy that you live and eat and breathe day in, day out, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, So I have seen it all. You know, I've grown up in the health business, the health publishing business, the organic business. I've I've met people from around the world. I've traveled so many different places, and um, I've seen trends come and go. And what I always come back to is, if it comes from nature, it must be pretty good, and it must be good for for you. So I always really focus on what are the foods that um, we can trust. And to me, that means organic or you know the farmer. Um, We can't always eat that way. So that's why, to me, certified organic is important in the supermarket. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, minimally processed and um, balanced and moderate. So I'm not a vegetarian. I do eat gluten. I think fat is important and good for you. And sugar is not... Um, Satan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you on all of those things. I believe in everything in moderation, very much like your philosophy. But you live a very real food life. And I appreciate that you bring uh, insight and, and a reminder to all of us that no matter the time of the year, the season, the holiday, the feast, there is a way to really stay true to that fresh, organic, whenever possible, real food concept. Yeah, and, you know, also to not be judgmental or, Mm. you know, harsh with yourself if you don't live up to that all the time. You know, I travel a lot. It's hard to eat organically and real food when you travel. But, um, you know, when you do control it, when you are at home... Um, it's the best way to eat. And it's so easy and it's so delicious. Um, Leave us with this, because the holidays can be busy and stressful and crazy. I found a multitude of recipes that I can't wait to try from your new cookbook called Scratch. But I am all about healing chicken broth. So can you heal us before we let you go? I love making a roast chicken. And you can use the carcass of a roast chicken or you can use a whole raw chicken. But, you know, just boil it in water, cover it up, boil it for like two or three hours or till, I say, till the chicken like surrenders, which means, you know, (laughs) if you poke it, it falls apart. Right. And then add salt. Um, And then from there, you can doctor it up any way you want. Like if you're really not feeling well, put some ginger and garlic and maybe, you know, cayenne pepper in it. If you need a little bit more nourishment, you know, put some noodles or rice or barley in it or farro. My my youngest loves farro. Um... And then, um, you know, if you want just even something more nourishing, you know, add vegetables to it. And homemade chicken broth is nectar of the gods. I agree. In my Jewish family, they called it Jewish. My mother calls it Jewish penicillin. (laughs) 
<laughs> it, it can heal everything, no doubt, as can um, a healthy lifestyle and a, a really positive approach, that which you no doubt embrace. Congratulations on the new cookbook and the continued success of your family business. It's home cooking for everyone, made simple, fun, and totally delicious from Maria Rodale before natural became a marketing buzzword. Um, because, you know, we've come a long way. The Rodale family was championing the importance of organic and real food. And Maria Rodale, the CEO and chairman of Rodale Inc. and granddaughter of the company founder, is committed to upholding the mission that her family embarked on more than 80 years ago. Thank you for continuing to bring joy and real food to the table. Maria, I wish you and your family a lovely holiday. Thank you so much. It's really been an honor to be here, and I wish you the same lovely holiday as well. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I hope that you sharpened your cooking skills and that I pleased your palate. And that, of course, you'll tune in every Sunday because we go way beyond mere eating and drinking on this show. I'm on a mission to find the most exciting places, new experiences, emerging trends, and the best recipes to share with you. I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation. It is National Cookie Day today. So say hello to the very best peanut butter cookies around. They are subtly sweet. They are peanut buttery. They are moist and so good. And I love how simple these cookies are to make. The peanut butter adds a good dose of protein. They're actually naturally gluten-free. And yes, they have three ingredients. You know I love the simple go-tos. This recipe happens to be a classic, but I think it's worthy of the reminder for National Cookie Day. It's a three-ingredient peanut butter cookie, and they're great to whip up in a pinch when you need a quick dessert or to bring a sweet to a party. They're fun to make with the kids. You can actually bake the cookies with a, a Hershey's Kiss in the center, but all you need is a cup of peanut butter, and you choose crunchy or creamy, three quarters of a cup of brown sugar, and a large egg beaten. You preheat the oven to 350 degrees. You mix together the peanut butter, the sugar, and the egg. I like brown sugar, by the way, over white sugar because I love that richness of flavor. You roll the dough into balls. You place it on a baking sheet. You flatten them and you bake six to eight minutes. The cookies will be just slightly browned on the bottom. You let them cool and then you transfer them to a wire rack and you cool completely. It doesn't get any easier than that, right? And they really are delectable. I will post my three ingredient peanut butter cookies on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. You can find the recipe at chefjamie.com as well. And I will meet you here next Sunday when there is more fabulous food in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well. Well,